The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. Welcome. I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we're on page 955 in a chair Bible. It's underneath a chair close by you. I invite you to turn there with me. We'll be reading in just a moment. Today is a straightforward message on uh, sexual immorality. Uh, I just want to tell the parents in the room that I will be appropriate in my comments, regardless of what age of a person is here. However, uh, I will be very straightforward, and that is necessary. Oftentimes, when I come to a sermon like this, this even happened in the last service, people get up and leave with their kids. Your kids know what's going on in the world. You're the one that's got your head in the sand. Uh, so I'm sorry to be that straight with you. This is how head in the sand people are. My daughter was doing a research paper on human development, and she was researching how the cell phone is affecting teenagers. And she came across a, a doctoral study that was done in Gaston County to discover that 70% of parents have no idea what their middle school child is looking at on a phone. I'm going to tell you what they're looking at. If, if you are that parent, you are wrong. And, and parents, we got to wake up to the world that our children live in. And, and, and what is going on around you and happening to you. You cannot hide them from this. That's why we have to preach sermons like I'm going to preach today. We live in a sexually insane culture. And we've got to be equipped as believers as to how we live and have our lives in the midst of a culture that's gone crazy. So 1 Corinthians 6 was written to a sexually insane culture. <laughs> He's speaking very directly to them. So may we take this and apply it today. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, I invite you to stand. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise, up, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Lord, I need your help. We need your help. Take your word and instruct us. Wake us up. Cause us to think. Cause us to see. Bring us to believe. We plead and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We live in what is called a sexual revolution. 
There are two sides to this revolution. One is the do what you want side. It is the predominant side of the culture now. It is a cavalier attitude that says whatever you want to proceed sexually with, you proceed with it and no one has a right to say anything to you at all. This is the world in which the Bible was written. Just prior to the turn of, of from B.C. to A.D., Cicero wrote, he was a philosopher and a politician, if there is anyone who thinks that a young person should be forbidden sexual relationships, he is overly strict. His view is contrary to the license of the age and also out of custom with those who have gone before us. So we live in a world that's like that. We're pressing into every area that every person, regardless of who they are, should be free to do what they want to with their body. Then you've got the other side. It's a minority. It's small. But basically their phrase is stop it. That's not working. This culture has no framework for stop it. When you live in a world that does what it wants to do and you say stop it, all you are doing is dampening them. The Bible's simple message is not stop it. There is a deeper, more profound explanation here in this text. Yes, there is a command, flee sexual immorality. But that command is in a context of a theological explanation for a moral dilemma. So let me just say it up front. For you to understand this message, you've got to use your brain today. You're going to have to think. So you don't come up to me after saying, oh, that was deep. I'm not trying to be intentionally deep. I'm trying to be faithful to the Bible. And here's what I believe. I believe you're a rational human being who can think a thought. Amen? So can your kids. Stop it is not going to work with your kids either. There's got to be a deeper understanding. So here's the main idea. Recognizing who we are in Christ. That's a crucial part of my argument today and the argument of this text. Recognizing who we are in Christ, we flee sexual immorality and seek to glorify God with our bodies. Now this passage takes place in the context of a discussion of sexual immorality. Just prior to this text, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, the wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he makes two profound points here. One, those who practice wrongdoing are not Christians. If the indicative of their life, what is true of their life, is they practice wrongdoing, they're giving evidence they're not a believer, but a believer who has been washed by the blood of Christ, who's been set apart by the Lord and justified, declared righteous in Christ, there's something that is true of them. Now he picks up the subject very directly of sexual immorality, one of the things that he lists and has nuanced descriptions of. So what we must do then 
is understand this. This is what he's getting to today. That obedience for a Christian is an activity of the body. Obedience for the Christian is the activity is an activity of the body. So recognizing who we are in Christ, here's the first thing we want to see. We must use our bodies for the Lord. Now, I'm not going to make excuse for this either. It's my third time preaching today. This is a fairly heavy subject. I'm going to have my head down in my notes more than normal. That's so that I don't get off track with you. So I'm not trying to ignore you as I'm preaching. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for this food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Do you see the quotations around three phrases? One of them's repeated. All things are lawful for me, then it's repeated again, and then food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. Here's what was happening. The Corinthians were taking things from the world they lived in, and specifically the Corinthian believers were taking those things from the world they lived in, and they were adopting them into their Christianity. Here's what they were hiding behind. I'm free in Jesus. Because I'm free in Jesus, everything's lawful for me which was a common statement in Corinth. That's what most commentators believe he's using the quotations here. This would be a Corinthian statement. <laughs> so in our culture, it would be, I can do whatever I want to do. It's my body. You can't tell me what I can do with my body. Sex is not wrong. And I will use my body as I see fit. So Paul replies to that. So this is in the context of a discussion of sexual immorality. All things are lawful for me, quote. But Paul says, but not all things are helpful. So let's just let's, let's lay down a truth here, and we're going to expand this next week. Sex is not bad. Amen? It's not a bad thing. But it is not beneficial in any context. In fact, it's harmful in most contexts or any context outside of marriage. Inside of marriage, it is a beneficial and helpful and wonderful thing. And we'll talk about that in depth next Sunday. So when he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, he's going to explain that further. Then he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Let's just cut straight to the, of the, to the chase here. Freedom is not a means to slavery. And there are multiple people in this room right now who are enslaved to sexual sin. Sexual sin is dominating our culture. It is dictating how young people are living and functioning. It is dictating how married people are living and functioning. It is destroying families and it is destroying our culture. People are owned by their sexuality. We are now defining ourselves by our sexuality. We are so enslaved to it, it is the dominant theme of life. Now he uses an argument here. If you're not paying attention, you just kind of miss it. In fact, it's a little hard to see. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So what does that mean? So here's, what they, here's, here's the logic. God's going to destroy my body. Food's meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. And, and God's going to destroy both one and the other. He's going to destroy food. He's going to destroy the stomach. There's not going to be a necessity for that. So they took it a step further, and here's what they said. 
So God's going to destroy my body. So what difference does it make what I do with my body? It went like this. It said other ways like this in the Bible. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow what? You die. Please your body. Because this body is going to die. Now here's what a Greek believed. A Greek was a dualist. This is a philosophy of looking at the world. Let me just tell you before I describe it, most of you in this room are functional dualists. They believe that you were body and soul. Those were two separate things, that the soul resided in the body, that the soul lived forever and the body was temporary and the body was going to die. Therefore, you didn't need to be so concerned about what you did with the body. The only thing you needed to be concerned with was the soul. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is certainly not what's being taught in this text. We are not dualists. We are dichotomists, and I could define that further to you. I may just simply say, we don't see, the Bible does not see soul and body as two totally separate things. They are two things that can clearly be identified that are inseparable. And that's what's being explained to you. So there's a category creation that's going to happen for you today. So the body, back to the text, verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So let's take out the middle, not meant. The body is meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So the body is not simply for my pleasure. I don't have the right to do anything I want to do with my body, particularly sexual immorality. Why? Because my body is for the Lord. Or let's say it this way. The the text is saying the body, the Lord is for the body specifically. My body belongs to the Lord. Now, the Lord is not against our bodies. He does not see our bodies as merely temporary. The Lord is for the body. God raised the Lord. You just sang about that. I watched you celebrate. Lift your hands and praise that Jesus was raised from the dead. Amen? But functionally, here's what many of you don't think. Or many of you think your body's just going to die and rot and go away and your soul's going to live forever. No, your body is going to be raised just like you sang about that Jesus was raised. Amen. My body matters. It is an integral part of who I am. I'm not just a soul. I'm not just going to be a disembodied soul that my soul is going to leave my body and, go, and never be so united again. No, this body is going to perish as you see it now, but it is going to be raised imperishable. This body, in eternity, you're going to know me. And I'm going to know you. And we're going to know Jesus, and we're going to see him as he is. We will know the the scars on his hands and feet and his side for all of eternity. We're going to know one another, not just as souls, but as bodies. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 42. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. 
your body will not be destroyed. So, so here's the point. View your body as the Lord views your body. Treat it as the Lord is for it because he is. So here's my question. Am I using my body for the Lord or for myself? Am I using my body for the Lord or for myself? Now we're talking about sexual immorality. This is the text. How can it be that a Christian could be enslaved sexually? The argument here is those two things don't go together. They're incompatible. That, that a Christian's body is for the Lord. It is not for the use of sexual immorality, for self-pleasure. Now he presses it further. Recognizing who we are in Christ, we must treat our bodies as members of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, when I use the word member here, most of you have in your mind this category. A member is you having a voluntary association that you can either take up or lay down at will. So I can either join you as a member or I can remove myself as a member. Right? That's what most of you think. That's not what he means. All right, so we're all going to think about my index finger. Right here. Okay? Watch this. You see that? It's pretty miraculous. You know how that happened? My brain said, move your finger. And an electric stimulus took place from my brain through the nerves. And it stimulated the muscles in my arm. Pow. Watch this. I can move it over here and do it. Because I can tell that joint with this muscle to move that over there. I can even move it to my nose and do things. I won't. <laughs> this thing's amazing. <laughs> Some of you use this when you drive down the road. But anyway. <laughs> the point is, I can single it out and say, that's my index finger on my right hand. But it is a member of my body. This is what Paul's saying. This is not a hyperbole. This is not an example. He's speaking of a firm reality. Your body is a member, is a member of Christ. Now that's mind-boggling. I dare say that many of you have ever thought about that at all. That you are connected to him. One author said it this way. Christ did not simply bid me to be myself. He calls me to himself and joins me to him. Shall I then, I'm back to the text. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Now let's just pause for a second. Prostitution is not a major problem. 
And I'm not saying it hasn't been a problem with anybody in this room. And I'm not saying it's not a problem in Gaston County. It is not Las Vegas, though. Prostitution is not just normal here. It's still a hidden and clandestine thing culturally for us. In Greece, it was normal. Most men used a prostitute every week. It was just expected. And it wasn't just female prostitutes. They used prostitutes. They used them and tied to their temple worship. So it was pagan worship. They were just, it was all mixed together. And, and what these Christians, some of them were doing, was saying, well, this is just normal. This is part of it. I'm, I'm free. I'm free to use my body. And, you know, I, I, I need the pleasure, whatever. Listen to what he says. Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? What does it say? Never. How, how could you even think such a thing? How could you go there? If you are in Christ, how could you move toward a sexually immoral relationship? Now, let me press this further culturally. You don't need a prostitute anymore. All you need is an app. I hesitate to use this because I hope I don't incite anybody to something. But you need to know that you could be standing in line at Walmart and that the person behind you has their app on. They're called Tinder and Grinder and other things like that. That is alerting them that there's somebody else in Walmart right now that's ready to hook up with them. And all they have to do is to go out in the parking lot, get their phones close enough to each other that they know who each other are, and go and have their liaison and go on about their life. This happens all the time in Gastonia. All the young people are looking at me like, how does he know that? <laughs> I'm a pastor. And I've dealt with the broken people who have used it. And let me just appeal to you, if you're doing that, you're, you're hurting yourself in ways you, you, you have yet to come to understand. Never, he says. Why? Do you not know that what he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as is written, the two will become one flesh? Now, Paul's not saying that any sexual union constitutes marriage. He is saying that a sexual relationship between two people is a profound thing. That the notion that you can have a sexual liaison that is casual and insignificant runs counter to what is taught about sexual relationship in the Bible. There is a profound psychophysical union and a sexual consummation but there's something more significant for you as a Christian. You have been united to the Lord. You are one with Him. And given the fact that you are one in Christ, when you get involved in a sexual liaison with someone other than your spouse, you tarnish the bond between you and Christ. 
Look in Ephesians 5, just a couple of books. Paul's explaining the relationship between a husband and wife and the profound nature it is. And he comes to this same argument there. You you miss it if you're not paying attention. In verse 30, he says, because we are members of his body, this is why, why Christians must marry Christians. You're both in Christ. You're both members of his body. But because we are members of his body as Christians, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The union of a man and woman in marriage points to a more profound union. It points to the union of Christ and the church, the members of his body. And it says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You say, well... See, it's just the spirit that matters. Look, he's making a whole argument around your body. Here's what he's saying. There's this inseparable union of spirit and body. The body is a part of the person. The spirit is a part of what makes you up. And and together you're united in Christ. He says in Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. Do you know the last phrase? And in all. He is in us. So we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are one with him. So it begs this question. Am I treating my body as a member of Christ? That's why Paul says never. How can it be that there would be rampant sexual immorality among God's people? How can it be that those who profess to be followers of Christ are living in sexual immorality and adultery? I'm going to tell you how. Based on what you believe. I came of age as a youth pastor in the late 80s and the 90s. And I said this over and over again. And I've said this in this pulpit before. And I'll repeat it again. And I'll repeat it again in the future. I pleaded with those young people. Who now have children, by the way. Most of you have teenagers. I pleaded with you and I said, stop listening to the culture tell you that sexual relationship while you're a teenager is just normal. Stop because you're harming yourself and here's what's going to happen. When you get married, you're going to have a hard time staying married. Now, 25 years later, I'm dealing with those people as adults who are struggling to stay married. Who are constantly dealing with sexual issues. Now, I'm not saying as your pastor you're doomed if you were sexually promiscuous as a young person. I'm not even saying you're doomed if you've committed adultery against your, pa- your pastor. I mean, your spouse. <laughs> I'm back to my notes. See, I told you. I'm probably going to turn red. Here's what I want you to see today. There's forgiveness for your past. 
and there is healing for what you have done. And I want to appeal to one more group. For those of you who have been sexually abused, there's healing for you. You're not doomed to be a sexual object the rest of your life. You are not. But here's what starts you on the pathway of wholeness. You've got to understand who you are. Your sexuality does not define you. Christ does. When Christ defines you, something profoundly different begins to happen. Then you can embrace this next statement. That recognizing who we're in Christ, we must flee sexual immorality. Since the bodies of believers will be raised from the dead, since their bodies are members of Christ, and since sexual union with someone outside of marriage is wrong, believers must flee sexual immorality. Why? He gives you the answer right here. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul is not saying that sexual immorality only damages the body, but rather it establishes this one flesh union that is against the body. It is against the body because it is uniquely body joining and it is uniquely body defiling. And it is defiling the union that you have with Christ. So sexual immorality must be fled. We must run from it. But instead of fleeing, we linger. This is how it starts. Sexual immorality begins with just a little conversation. It begins with something said or a look, a flattery, a touch. Paul says sexual immorality and impurity or covetous must not even be named among you. Some translations say it this way. It's Ephesians 5.3. There must not be a hint among you. So men and women, this is no longer a man issue. Stop treating it like a man issue. Pornography is sexual sin and it is setting you up for deeper sexual sin. This is not a teenage boy problem anymore. It's a senior adult man problem. It's a young mother problem. It's a rampant problem everywhere and it is setting us up for deeper sexual sin. So starting there, the question is, am I fleeing sexual immorality? Don't think for a moment that Paul is not drawing from, from Genesis 39 when it says that, that Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. The reason he fled from her was because he had already made a firm decision in his life that when sexual immorality confronted him, he was out. That's the kind of decision that you've got to make now. You've got to decide, that is not going to define me. That is not going to be who I am. Don't think for a second that there's any person in this room who cannot be lured into sexual immorality. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what you think you look like or don't look like. Don't think for a moment. If, if this job has taught me anything, 
It's that anybody can get caught up in sexual immorality. Anybody. Flee. Flee. Fourth and final point. Recognizing who we are in Christ, we must seek to glorify God in our bodies. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He's already repeated this, or he said this earlier in 1 Corinthians 3. Do not, do not know that you're God's temple and God's Spirit dwells within you. Your body is the holy residence of the Holy Spirit. God resides in you. You are not your own. So the Spirit of God lives in you and this truth. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now this is an image, a slavery image, which slavery was very common. Our, 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 our history of slavery is an awful one in our country. This, 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 this form of slavery was not one race against another. It was just it was a common form of what happened. So a, a person being purchased in slavery was, was, was a common image. He's not, the Bible's not belittling this at all, but it's drawing you a, a word picture here. He says, you were bought with a price. So that means before Christ, you were a slave. A slave to what? Sin. You were bought with a price. That is, Christ purchased you with his own blood on the cross of Calvary. But he did not purchase you to set you free to return to the bondage of sin. He purchased you for himself. Believers are no longer autonomous people. I am not the sovereign authority of my life. Instead, I live under God's authority. You say, well, I don't like that very much. Well, you don't like Christianity. That's the truth. We've got to come to terms with this. People want people like me to create this new form of Christianity. All you got to do is believe this dude died on a cross, you go to heaven. Do whatever you want to do, just believe that. The devils in hell believe that. That's what James says. Brothers and sisters, that purchase on the cross is to purchase me from sin to Christ. I am not my own. You are not your own. This is a quote 150 years ago. The death of Christ for sin is the divine plan. Not for dispensing with obedience from men, but for effectually obtaining it. Reconciliation is the road to righteousness. God proclaims pardon and bestows peace that the rebels may submit and serve. Those who do not like the obligation to obedience have no part in forgiving grace. So... If you've been purchased by his blood and you realize that you are not your own, here's the conclusion of this whole text. So glorify God in your body. Notice he doesn't just say glorify God. He is very specific. Glorify God in your body. And don't think for a moment that the next chapter on the sexual relationship between a husband and wife doesn't follow that on purpose because it does. We'll take that up next week. That we glorify God in our body. But it is wider than that. That we glorify God in every part of our life. Now, i got to confront one more cultural thing. He does not say glorify your body. We are obsessed with how we look, what we wear, 
the hours we spend in the gym and how we eat. I didn't say eat bad. Gluttony is also a sin and a form of idolatry. I just have this question. The obsession with how we look, how much does that have to do with sexuality? It has a lot to do with it. I'm just saying this as pastor. How many affairs that I'm aware of began in a gym? My body is more than something you look at. And most of us in the world aren't much to look at. But I'm more than that. I've been bought with a price. The Spirit of God lives within me. And you may not like much what I look like, but God gave me this body and redeemed me to glorify Him with it. So whatever you do, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Listen very carefully. If. If anyone is in Christ. Really, this whole thing hinges on conversion. If conversion has not happened to you, glory, glorifying God is never going to happen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, what? The new has come. What's the new? That I glorify God in my body. I can now do what I was made to do. Yes, I've been set free. Not to do what I want to do. I am now set free to do what I was made to do. I can now glorify God. So I dare say this, there's probably a lot of conviction in this room over sin. If you, if you are a new creation and you are under heavy, heavy conviction over your sin, you need to repent. If sin is the pattern of your life, you need to back up to chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 and ask the question, am I truly a follower of Jesus? And you need to confess your sin and need for Christ and repent and turn to him. And you need to receive the forgiveness that Christ and Christ alone can give. Let's pray. Lord, I plead now for the men and women in this room. I particularly plead for the, the person in their teens and early 20s, the unmarried among us. We're hearing a message, God, that is contrary to your word in the world, and some of them have believed it and believe it still. Open their eyes. I pray for the married people in the room and ask God that you would cause them to understand how their marriage is to be a reflection of the mystery of the union they, are, they have with Christ. Pray for the older singles, the widows and widowers, and plead for their purity as well. We are in Christ. He has made us new. Convict us now, Lord, that we might glorify you in our bodies. Lead us as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.